So much of creativity is founded upon risk and vulnerability. Innovating new ideas requires we travel to the edge of ourselves, pushing past our comfort zones, our fears, and embracing uncertainty. This requirement of risk holds true in every manner of creative endeavor, whether it's recipe making, musical composition, gardening, or visual art. For songwriters, it may mean stepping past familiar styles of playing and adopting elements of a musical genre you've never explored. For actors or performers, it may mean taking on a character so unlike your natural temperament, you're forced to go outside of yourself for inspiration. For others, it could mean busking 500 miles across Spain with a violin you barely know how to play, no money in your pocket, and no idea of where your next meal is coming from. My guest today is British adventurer and author Alistair Humphreys. Alistair Humphreys has been on expeditions all around the world, traveling through over 80 countries by bicycle, boat, and on foot. He was named as one of National Geographic's Adventurers of the Year for 2012. He's walked across southern India, rode across the Atlantic Ocean, run six marathons through the Sahara Desert, and participated in an expedition in the Arctic close to the magnetic North Pole. More recently, Alistair followed in the footsteps of one of his own heroes, an Englishman named Laurie Lee, who walked across Spain in 1935, earning money for food by playing his violin in bars and plazas. I enjoyed talking with Alistair about his adventures, his fears and motivations behind his lifestyle of risk and wonder-seeking. I think you'll enjoy being a part of our conversation and hearing a bit of his story today as well. I'm sure you'll come away inspired to take the journey past your own doorstep into whatever unknown is calling you to the next stage of creative development. You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Roach. This is Season 5, Episode 10, My Midsummer Morning with Alistair Humphreys. Well, Alistair, I'm excited to have you on the show. You are the first, uh, would you call yourself an adventurer? Yeah, that's the nearest I've come to a job description, yes. Yeah, yeah. So you're the first adventurer that I've had on Makers and Mystics, and uh for our listeners that may not be familiar with who you are and uh, what that consists of, why don't you tell us a little about yourself? Okay. Yeah, I I call myself an adventurer, but I think really that just means I'm a grown-up without a proper job um, and no intention of getting one as long as I can. So I, I've spent a lot of years of my life traveling the world. I spent four years cycling around the planet, um, 46,000 miles in 60 countries for four years. Um, I've rode across the Atlantic Ocean, sailed the Atlantic Ocean, walked across India, walked across the empty quarter desert, done some ultra marathons, big stupid things like that, um, <laughs> which I love very much. I love exploring the world. And gradually I managed to turn my hobby, the adventures, into a creative life, which I also love for equally but very differently. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that that journey in itself will appeal to a lot of our listeners, just turning something that you love into a way of life. And can you tell me some about how that worked out for you? How did you first pursue that transition from a hobby to a way of life? 
Um, well, I first of all put in a cautionary note that you have to be careful what you wish for. You know, turning your hobby into your job isn't always a good idea. It's worked out well for me, but I think it should be treated with caution. Um, I started doing adventure stuff because I loved it. I started writing because I loved reading and wanted to see if I could be a writer. And to try and earn a bit of money while I was doing those two things, I started giving talks to children about my adventures and the, the lessons I'd learned from going around the world and gradually started to earn enough money from those talks to start to turn this stuff into my job. At which point I then thought, right, now I'd better take this seriously. And therefore I need to learn how to take good photographs. So I started doing photography courses, um, learn how to build a brand, Try not to vomit when you describe yourself as a brand. Um, <laughs> develop the massive ego needed to show off about yourself on the internet, but also hopefully the common sense to not take it all too seriously uh, and not believe all the nonsense. And then working huge hours to gradually make it a viable lifestyle. But for me, it's not just the adventure, the travel, the expeditions that I love. I, I love the other stuff as well, the writing books, the, the sort of creative hustling to try and make it work, the interesting people I meet all over the world, the interesting conversations like this I have with someone who I've never met before. I love that side of the variety of my life as well. Mm -hmm. Well, I know that aside from being an avid adventurer, you're also a pretty prolific author. And you've published 10 books to date, and you just released your 11th book. Tell us some about this latest book that you just published. So my latest book is called My Midsummer Morning, and I think it's the best book I've written. And I say that not to show off, but I say that because if I say that to the world, then I have no excuses to hide behind if it's actually terrible. And so that I say that as a declaration of vulnerability. And this whole adventure was a investigation of vulnerability really so i've done lots of big adventures usual sort of tough guy trying to show how tough i am journeys and i gradually realized that i was getting quite good at them you know i've been doing them for 20 years i should be good at putting up a tent by now and i realized that if i continue just doing this sort of adventure that actually that wasn't very adventurous actually it was just me living in a rut and a routine and a comfort zone in a different sort of way and so if I wanted to live adventurously, what I needed to do was get back to finding a way to scare myself, to risk failure, to be full of fear and uncertainty and to find something I was bad at and try and overcome it. And that then led me to trying to learn the violin. <laughs> um, I have no musical skills at all. Um, performing in public, performing music is one of my great phobias. I wouldn't, I hate karaoke. I hate dancing in public. So I'm scared of all these things. And back in the 1930s, an English guy called Laurie Lee walked through Spain playing his violin just before the Spanish Civil War. And that's always been my favorite travel book. And for 15 years, I'd been dreaming of doing the trip, but being too scared to actually do it. So I put it into action. I had a seven months of violin lessons, which was not nearly enough. I was really terrible. I turned up in Spain with no money, no credit card, no wallet, just my violin to see if I could walk for 500 miles to Madrid, completely dependent upon being brave enough to stand up in a little plaza, play my five very bad songs and just say to the world, here I am. Let's see what happens. <laughs> That's amazing. 
Wow, it that's was terrifying. <laughs> and for, you know, for you, that would be a very different experience, wouldn't it? Sure, sure. Well, I know just uh, from my own musical background that seven months of violin is almost enough to know how to take it out of the case. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, you know, when I say to people I'm bad, people always just assume I'm being modest. But no, five, seven months of the violin really sounds very bad oh, yeah. and perhaps i can provide you some audio to to put over the podcast i'll take your word for that uh, <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> well tell me about your first experience busking with this violin so I, I was practicing hard for seven months and part of me thought i should practice busking to learn the tricks and get it out of my system but then i thought no i need to do this properly i need to not do it until it really matters so i didn't busk until day one in Spain. It's the first time I'd ever played in front of anyone except my violin teacher. <laughs> and I'd been paying her for the privilege of listening <laughs> to me. So I got to Spain and I just, I walked around the town for hours, procrastinating, looking for a good place, looking for excuses. And I was just so scared. And eventually I thought, come on, I've just got to do this. I uh, put my stuff down in the, in the plaza, set up my violin, and I was just sweating and sweating and sweating. And I realized that this was the most afraid I'd felt since the day I set off to try and row across the Atlantic Ocean in a small little rowboat. And I found that really fascinating. The, the, um, the feeling was very similar, you know, this visceral fear of being out of control and out of my depth. Mm -hmm. And yet what you're scared of in the Atlantic is you know, storms and capsizes and sharks. And what was I scared of here? I was scared of what people might say or someone being mean to me or it was it was a really interesting but different experience and it was a predictable disaster i played for hours and everyone ignored me or laughed at me and i was just thinking this is the worst idea i've ever had i really really want to go home i wish i could how can i get out of this with some sort of dignity intact mm -hmm. and so you kept going though well i realized i i had what's quite nice about doing adventures is there's a real simplicity to the life. It's not easy, but it's simple. It's, you know, for example, on a long, a long hike, you have a choice. You either walk or you sit down and cry. You can sit down and cry, and often you do that, but it doesn't, in the end, you just got to get up and carry on. And it was the same with the violin. It was, I could either have quit and come home or I could carry on. So I just kept playing. <sighs> and eventually this old gentleman, was he'd been sitting over on a park bench watching me for a really long time <laughs> and I was getting a bit self-conscious by this and eventually he stood up and he walked over to me with his walking stick really slowly he's quite a smart old gentleman and I thought oh, I've really offended him here and he's going to tell me off he's going to say senor por favor go away give us back our peace I beg you <laughs> and then I thought I would crumble at that point but he didn't instead he reached into his pocket and he pulled out a coin and he gave it to me and I just thought my heart was going to burst at this moment with relief and exhilaration and amusement and pride, I suppose. I'd done it. I'd earned myself. And not just any little coin. He gave me a whole euro. I was rich. You know, with a euro, you can buy a bag of rice. With a bag of rice, you can walk for a week. Walk for a week. Who knows what happens after that? So then I was on. It was an absolutely thrilling experience. Wow. Well, I love this story that you're living out because... For us here in our community of artists, we talk a lot about creativity and some of the elements of creativity and art making are overcoming fear. It deals with failure, uncertainty, 
taking risks, all these things that you're actually embodying in your adventure, you know? And it's like creativity or creative discovery happens at the edge of the, of the known and the unknown. And so your story is kind of fleshing out what I think so many of my artist friends experience in a much different way in the studio. So I think it's fascinating. Yeah, it's, um, it's different, but also very, very similar, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, the, and I think, the sp- I think what, what I really enjoyed about this violin trip was that it's a bridge between lots of different worlds. You know, when, I, when I talk to people about crossing a desert, people think, oh, that's interesting, but it has zero relevance to anyone's life. <laughs> but <laughs> the violin... Tip taps into what you were just talking about, you know, uh, and the fear of being an imposter as well. That that huge imposter syndrome we put upon ourselves, and the fear of failure, and and worrying what will people think, and the fear of the difficulty of beginning. These are all huge parts of my adventure life, but also of my the book writing and the creative side of things as well. And I I like the way these things are starting to mesh together in my brain now as adventure feels much broader to me now than just who can go to the Arctic and suffer. Mm-hmm. And so it takes a lot of bravery as well. And I would imagine like maybe in some instances you can't think too much about it. Yeah, I think generally if you think these things through too much, then you're <laughs> likely to not do it. Right. So I try to prepare and organize and plan just sufficiently to illuminate the path ahead just enough to give me the confidence to begin, to be brave enough to begin. Mm-hmm. Because as uh, years and years of doing these things have shown me that I'm certainly not brave and therefore you need tips and tricks to to deal with your own cowardice. And, uh, and for me, it's just persuading myself to just begin, to take that first step and get some motion going. And I've really found in everything I do that once I'm moving and you get some momentum, then you're in a vastly stronger position than you were minutes before, before you took that first little step. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's all it takes is just taking that first little step and then the whole adventure. What is that? I think it's kind of a cliche that you hear. um, uh, Maybe it's a Buddhist phrase or something, but it's the, uh, the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. Yeah, it's certainly true. And I, well, my, my version of that is a, a Norwegian phrase called the doorstep mile. And in Norway, they say that, the doorstep mile, so crossing your doorstep is the longest mile of any journey. And I really like that idea of just get out of your front door and then you've done the hardest part. And the, the notion of that doorstep mile has helped me now in, in many things, from actual adventures to sitting down in front of a computer and thinking, oh, time to write a book, where do I begin? Tell me, I'm curious to know how much of your adventure begins mapped out and determined and how much do you leave to chance or spontaneity i leave as much to chance and spontaneity as i dare Mm -hmm. Um, by inclination i'm quite a nervous pessimistic person and i've been trying to coach myself through my adult life to be less like that and to be more bold and curious so i have to plan enough to make me begin certain journeys you know crossing an ocean you have to plan enough so that you don't die um but i think perhaps the best trip to describe this question is cycling around the world where i prepared but you know i got a bike i got a tent i sorted out some visas and passports and then i tried to just let the days unfold so if people invited me to their house i'd say yes if i saw a little detour path i'd try and take it 
and what I experienced was the times when I got impatient because you know I had four years to cycle so I couldn't go taking every single detour but every time I just got impatient and rode fast down the road for a month I'd get frustrated every time I said yes to the small back routes and the little invitations years that have passed they're the things that I remember so I try my best to allow myself to be as flexible and relaxed as my personality will allow me to be mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what are some of the experiences that you have do you ever find yourself in these providential moments or these moments where just the wonder of life comes to you and transforms your view of it or what do you experience when you're out there in, in the midst of these adventures um the four years i spent cycling around the world was a was a really interesting time in my life so i was in my mid-20s so I was quite curious about life and the meaning of life and and spirituality and beyond. And being on your own on a bicycle for four years is a good way to examine <laughs> to examine yourself right. uh, and to examine the world. And and I think the two aspects that stood out for me. One was the exploring of different cultures that I rode through. You know, so I, I cycled through first through Europe and then through the Muslim Middle East, down through Africa, up through Catholic South America, up through the US, and then across uh, Asia with its hodgepodge of, of beliefs. And, and the thing I found really striking from that was just the commonality of human behavior, really, just the, the kindness and decency of humans everywhere I went, across demographic spectrums and religions and economic levels i just found this constancy of kindness around the world and that was a really rewarding part of the journey and something which now that i'm home and living a real life having that knowledge in my head when you see all the crazy horrible things happening in the world just this knowledge that nearly everyone in the world is good and decent like we all are trying to get on with life so that was a really big part of the trip mm. the second aspect of that journey is is the wilderness side when when it's just me on my own miles and miles and miles and miles from the nearest human um and that that's when i feel usually the big sense of awe this feeling of being incredibly small in a very large beautiful random world um and I, so i really enjoy that that side of wilderness expeditions as well mm-hmm. so what is that solitude like when you're out there in the in the wilderness for links and links of time do you write is that when you write your books or how do you pass your time (laughs) i i write i write journals every night partly because i have no friends no one to talk to need to process my head i've no one to what i i can't watch tv so it gives me something to do sitting around the campfire writing and also nowadays it helps me with my my book writing um there's a very fine line between solitude and loneliness and solitude is the wonderful feeling of being out in the middle of a desert sitting by a campfire. And loneliness is the horrible feeling of being out in the middle of a desert sitting by a campfire. And often there's no difference at all except what's happening in your head that day. And one of the challenges of being on my own for four years was when I spiraled down towards sadness and despair and futility, trying to pick myself up. Um, and the highs, of course, when you're feeling you you feel like you're the king of the world out in the desert. That's the good times. But mm-hmm. I tend to do quite a lot of oscillating between solitude and loneliness on these trips. Mm-hmm. Partly also because you're exhausted. You know, you're usually really hungry, uh, really tired, and these are state times when you tend to be a bit emotional anyway. 
Well, tell me more about your adventure in Spain then, going back to your, your book, My Midsummer Morning, after you got your first Euro for playing your violin, and then I, I assume you bought your bag of rice and moved on for a week. Like, tell me about what happens after that. Well, actually, the first day I earned four euros, which oh, is just... nice. <laughs> yeah, I know. Serious. I'm a professional musician. Um, You've made more than I have at music. <laughs> yeah. That was tax-free as well. <laughs> so, I, um, yeah, I went... That I couldn't believe it. So, I spent my extravagant four euros. And I had a rule, which I made up then, which was whenever I earned money, I had to spend all of it immediately. So that when I got to the next town, I would be back to zero, back to hungry, back to scared again. So I had this feast and famine approach to the trip. Um, and then off I went 500 miles through beautiful, beautiful Spanish landscapes, sleeping out every night. I could never earn enough to pay for a bed. So it's a month under the stars, uh, washing in rivers. And then every day or two, I drop down from the hills down to a little village to to play, to play my music until eventually I earned enough for a loaf of bread, and then I'd walk on. And that was a wonderful mix of solitude in the hills versus the social, very social experience of busking. And actually, I think it was the most sociable adventure I've ever been on, because the entire success of the project depended upon interacting with strangers, people I'd never met before who are walking down the street for five seconds. Could I make a connection by eye contact, by my terrible sounds in order for them to respond and I've, that's it was such a fascinating experience trying to get this spark of human connection while someone's walking down the street doing their shopping mm -hmm. did you ever encounter some really negative responses from people well i wish i could say i did in turn you know one of the problems with, uh, when i sat down to write this book one of the problems i realized was nothing bad happened this is going <laughs> this is going to be the most boring book anyone's ever written because literally nothing bad happened you know, pe people loads of people ignored me of course most people ignored me a few people sort of sneered at me or gave me a strange look but no generally it was just either being ignored which i can handle or interesting Uh, conversations or people laughing at me but in a nice way and no nothing bad happened in the whole trip which is a terrible anecdote <laughs> that's amazing that's amazing so I've, i've spent most of my life learning how to play musical instruments and i think that i should have just walked across the uh the spanish uh, countryside instead yeah. <laughs> well it's a it's a the experience for you it would be I'm sure you'd enjoy it very much, but it would be a very different experience, wouldn't it? Because yeah. for you, you have the musical skills. So I, I wonder what your version of something you're terrible at that would terrify you would mm -hmm. be for going to cross Spain with. Yeah, yeah. Well, I love that that seems to be at the heart of this particular adventure. You said you had done these adventure trips for so long, you found yourself just in this comfort zone, whereas for most of your, of your average nine to five working you know, person, doing an adventure like that would take them to the edge of themselves. But for you, who's made a profession or a lifestyle out of adventuring, you had reached a comfort zone and you needed a new adventure. I love that. And again, that just really speaks to the heart of the artist. And, and I think that so many people who are pursuing creative lifestyles and creative living I think that that's something that we can all apply to our own lives and have a takeaway from uh, just what you've embodied on this trip. 
Yeah, I think I think what I've taken away from it myself is to try and get a bit of both things in my life. So I think there's a time and a place for striving for excellence and striving for mastery and expertise and just plugging away and practicing and practicing and practicing to become the best you can at something. And I think that's an important part. So for me, that is my writing, for example, trying to learn to become a good writer. But on the other hand, there's also a huge part of life that I think benefits from shaking it up a bit, from getting out of your comfort zone, getting away from your expertise and scaring yourself, uh, reminding yourself that you are not this amazing person that you might think you are, that actually perhaps you're just being a bit of a wimp by trundling along in your comfort zone. And the comfort zone applies whether you're going to the same office every single day or whether you're some hipster or a goth it doesn't matter we all are in our own little ruts because that's where we feel safe and comfortable and stepping out of that even briefly and trying to make yourself be brave enough to just say to the world here i am i'm really bad i'm terrible i'm totally useless at this but i'm trying it my best here i am throw yourself on the mercy of the world is that actually I think once you acknowledge those weaknesses, it becomes a great strength, I think. Mm-hmm. And having lived through this and written the book about it, how would you say that this experience has changed your own life? I think it's been a coming together over quite a few years now of various strands in my life. So the lessons I've learned from big, difficult expeditions of perseverance and just plodding away one step at a time and learning over time that I am actually quite good at something rather than just constantly being harsh on myself to actually say, hey, I am good at X, Y, and Z. So I'm growing up to be able to acknowledge that, but also now trying to be brave enough to do new and different things. And then the third strand is to look differently at what adventure means to me so as i grow older i'm not going to be crossing deserts for the rest of my life but i want to find ways to live adventurously every day so to keep this the attitude of adventure the the boldness and the curiosity to try and apply that in small little ways throughout my daily life that's the third strand i'm trying to do so a very tiny example of that is this year um i've got a calendar reminder so the first of every month my calendar ping says go climb a tree and I have to go climb my local oak tree. And it's quite a hard, scary climb, but I climb up to the same point, look around, notice how the season's changing, notice what's happening in the, the you know, the growth of things. I have think back to my month that's just passed, I think briefly to the month ahead, then I climb down my scary tree and get back to work. And just trying to build little things like that into my daily life is what I'm trying to do now. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. It's such an intentionality that it seems like you've cultivated. Yeah, and a, a lot of adventure is about just cultivating intentionality and habits. Uh, I have a, above my desk a habit calendar. It's like you know a row of X's. I have to do the X's every day, which for me is to do pull-ups. So every time I go for a pee outside my writing shed, I have to do some pull-ups <laughs> on the tree. And if you do that every single day for 90 days you get much stronger than you were 90 days ago. And I try and apply that to whether it's reading books, writing books, or um, climbing trees. I think that intentionality is probably one of the main things that leads us from being a hobbyist to a lifestyle. That's interesting, yeah. Just forcing yourself to do the work and no excuses, just get on and do it. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, what we really have is an uncertain amount of time. 
you know. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, when I do talks, one of the one of the things I talk about is this website called deathclock.com. Um, and deathclock uh, is very cheerful. It calculates for you your predicted date of death. <laughs> and I have put that date in my Google calendar in bright red. That date and all dates following is my reminder that, wow, if I'm lucky, that's how long I've got left. I need to get on and do stuff because... Uh, Tempus is fugiting. Time is flying. We need to get on and do things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, tell me then, what's the next adventure that you're plotting? So one big aspect of my adventuring life that we haven't actually touched on is that I started to try to find a way to help so-called normal people have a bit more adventure within their framework of real life. Because so many people were getting in touch with me saying, I'd love to do adventures, but I don't have enough time. I don't have enough money or a thousand and one other excuses, some legitimate, most internal and mental. So I started trying to take the essence of my big adventures, which we've talked about quite a lot, and find short, local, cheap, simple ways to do that. Uh, and I call them micro adventures. These are deliberately small adventures. And that, that idea within my adventure world online has grown to be, I think, the thing that people are most interested in what I've been doing in recent years. So, for example, I'm I'm quite busy at the moment with my new book. So last night, um, it wasn't till 10 p.m. that I chucked a sleeping bag and a hammock and a couple of things in a bag, jumped on my bike with a flashlight, cycled out to the woods, camped out in the woods, woke up at dawn, five o'clock this morning, made myself a coffee in the wood, cycled back, back to my desk, ready for a new day. Before, uh, so squeezing adventure in to the hours when most people are either watching TV or just sleeping. So trying to really have micro adventures in daily life. One of the things that we talk about in our community a lot is finding wonder in the mundane. And I think for a lot of people, you know, it feels like adventure is this big, huge thing that maybe they don't have the time or the resources or the flexibility to do. But I love what you call micro adventures. It's like really just getting yourself out of the norm and experiencing that wonder really is all around us at any given moment. Oh, yeah, that that has been, I think, one of the biggest things in my life to try and as you know, I'm, I'm a middle aged man now with a wife and kids and a mortgage. And I'm not going to be going to walk across the desert this year or for many years to come. And that pains me. You know, I feel I want to be out exploring, but real I have real life as well. So learning to find wonder and beauty and adventure every day has been a huge help for me personally in my own life. So yeah, this sort of small act of deliberate noticing is what exactly why I go climb a tree uh, every month is why I try and swim in rivers whenever I see one that looks nice. Just yeah, it's not, it sh you sh I don't think you should strive for one big adventure of a lifetime. When I retire, I'm going to go on a cruise to Alaska rather than having an adventure of a lifetime, I think it's much wiser to try and have a lifetime of adventure. So small little adventures in however you define adventure every single day, I think is far better than just striving for one big success adventure. Wow. I love acts of deliberate noticing. That to me just goes back to the perception of the artist as well and then I love how you turned that phrase on its head that rather than an adventure of a lifetime a lifetime of adventure I love it 
Well, Alistair, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us on Makers and Mystics. And for everyone listening, I'm going to make sure that we put links to all of your work and where they can pick up your book. And uh, I just have enjoyed this conversation thoroughly. Yeah, I've enjoyed it very much as well. You ask good questions. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you so much for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Makers and Mystics or support the podcast by joining our creative collective, visit makersandmystics.com or see the show notes of this episode. Patrons of the podcast can enjoy an additional interview segment with Alistair Humphreys on our favorite books, The Third Man Factor, and further discussion on today's topic. Music for this episode was provided with permission by Glass C, Daniel Birch, and Aaron Strumpel. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.